Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And one of our favorite authors here, O. Henry. This classic short story is titled, Best Seller. Part 1 One day last summer, I went to Pittsburgh. Well, I had to go there on business. My chair car was profitably well-fitted with people of the kind one usually sees on chair cars. Most of them were ladies in brown silk dresses cut with square yokes, with lace insertion, and dotted veils who refused to have the windows raised. Then there was the usual number of men who looked as if they might be in almost any business and going almost anywhere. Some students of human nature can look at a man in a pullman and tell you where he is from, his occupation, and his stations in life, both flag and social. But I never could. The only way I can correctly judge a fellow traveler is when the train is held up by robbers, or when he reaches at the same time I do for the last towel in the dressing room of the sleeper. The porter came and brushed a collection of soot on the window sill off to the left knee of my trousers. I removed it with an air of apology. The temperature was 88. One of the dotted, veiled ladies demanded the closing of two more ventilators and spoke loudly of interlocking. I leaned back idly in chair number seven and looked with the tepidest curiosity at the small, black, bald-spotted head just visible above the back of number nine. Suddenly, number nine hurled a book to the floor between his chair and the window, and, looking, I saw that it was... The Rose Lady and Trevelyan, one of the best-selling novels of the present day. And then the critic, or Philistine, whichever he was, veered his chair toward the window, and I knew him at once for John A. Peskid of Pittsburgh, traveling salesman for a plate-glass company, an old acquaintance whom I'd not seen in two years. In two minutes we were faced, had shaken hands, and had finished with such topics as rain, prosperity, health, residence, and destination. Politics might have followed next, but I was not so ill-fated. I wish that you might know John A. Peskid. He's of the stuff that heroes are not often lucky enough to be made of. He is a small man with a wide smile, and an eye that seems to be fixed upon that little red spot on the end of your nose. I never saw him wear but one kind of necktie, and he believes in cuff holders and button shoes. He is as hard and true as anything ever turned out by the Cambria Steelworks, and he believes that as soon as Pittsburgh makes smoke consumers compulsory, St. Peter will come down and sit at the foot of Smithfield Street and let somebody else attend to the gate up in the branch heaven. He believes that our plate glass is the most important commodity in the world, and that when a man is in his hometown, he ought to be decent and law-abiding. During my acquaintance with him in the city of diurnal night, I had never known his views on life, romance, literature, and ethics. We had browsed during our meetings on local topics, and then parted after Chateau Margot, Irish stew, flannel cakes, cottage pudding, and coffee. Hey there, with milk separate. Now I was to get more of his ideas. By the way of facts, he told me that business had picked up since the party conventions and that he was going to get off at Coketown. Part 2 Say, said Peskid, 
stirring his discarded book with the toe of his right shoe. Did you ever read one of these bestsellers? I mean the kind where the hero is an American swell, sometimes even from Chicago, who falls in love with a royal princess from Europe who is traveling under an alias and follows her to her father's kingdom or principality? I guess you have. They're all alike. Sometimes this going-away masher is a Washington newspaper correspondent, and sometimes he's a van-something from New York, or a Chicago wheat broker worthy 50 millions. But he's always ready to break into the king row of any foreign country that sends over their queens and princesses to try the new plush seats on the Big Four or the B&O. There doesn't seem to be any other reason in the book for their being here. Well, this fellow chases the royal chair warmer home, as I said, and finds out who she is. He meets here on the Corso or the Strasse one evening and gives us ten pages of conversation. She reminds him of the difference in their stations, and that gives him a chance to ring in three solid pages about America's uncrowned sovereigns. If you'd take his remarks and set them to music, and then take the music away from him, they'd sound exactly like one of George Cohen's songs. Well, you know how it runs on, if you've read any of them. He slaps the king's Swiss bodyguards around like everything, whenever they get in his way. He's a great fencer, too. Now, I've known of some Chicago men who were pretty notorious fences, but I'd never heard of any fencers coming from there. He stands on the first landing of the royal staircase in Castle Schutzenfestenstein with a gleaming rapier in his hand and makes a Baltimore broil of six platoons of traitors who come to massacre the said king. And then he has to fight duels with a couple of chancellors and foil a plot by four Austrian archdukes to seize the kingdom for a gasoline station. But the great scene is when his rival for the princess's hand, Count Fyodor, attacks him between the portcullis and the ruined chapel, armed with a mitraloose, a yadigan, and a couple of Siberian bloodhounds. This scene is what runs the bestseller into the 29th edition before the publisher has time to draw a check for the advance royalties. The American hero shucks his coat and throws it over the heads of the bloodhounds, gives the mitraloose a slap with his mitt, says yeah to the yadigan, and lands in Kid McCoy's best style on the Count's left eye. Of course, we have a neat little prize fight right then and there. The Count, in order to make the go possible, seems to be an expert at the art of self-defense, himself. And here we have the Corbett-Sullivan fight done over into literature. The book ends with the broker and the princess doing a John Cecil Clay cover under the linden trees on the Gorgonzola Walk. That winds up the love story plenty good enough but I noticed that the book dodges the final issue. Even a bestseller has sense enough to shy at either leaving a Chicago grain broker on the throne of Lobster Potsdam or bringing over a real princess to eat fish and potato salad in an Italian chalet on Michigan Avenue. What do you think about him? Why? Why? said I. I hardly know, John. There's a saying, love levels all ranks, you know? Yes, said Peskid, but these kind of love stories are rank, on the level. I know something about literature, even if I'm in plate glass. These kind of books are wrong, and yet I never go into a train, but what they pile them up on me. No good can come out of an international clinch between the old world aristocracy and one of us fresh Americans. When people in real life marry, they generally hunt up somebody in their own station. 
A fellow usually picks out a girl that went to the same high school and belonged to the same singing society that he did. When young millionaires fall in love, they always select the chorus girl that likes the same kind of sauce on the lobster that he does. Washington newspaper correspondents always always marry widow ladies 10 years older than themselves who keep boarding houses. No, sir, you can't make a novel sound right to me when it makes one out of... When it makes one of C.D. Gibson's bright young men go abroad and turn kingdoms upside down just because he's a Taft American and took a course at the gymnasium. And listen how they talk, too. Peskett picked up the bestseller and hunted his page. Listen to this, said he. Trevelyan, just so you know, Trevelyan's chinning with the Princess Elwina at the back end of the tulip garden, and this is how it goes. Say not so, dearest and sweetest of earth's fairest flowers. Would I aspire? You're a star, set high above me in a royal heaven. I am only myself. Yet, I am a man, and I have a heart to do and dare. I have no title save that of an uncrowned sovereign, but I have an arm and a sword that yet might free Schutzenfestenstein from the plots of traitors. Think of a Chicago man packing a sword and talking about freeing anything that sounded as much like canned pork as that. He'd be much more likely to fight to have an import duty put on it. I think I understand you, John, said I. You want fiction writers to be consistent with their scenes and characters. They shouldn't mix Turkish poshes with Vermont farmers, or English dukes with Long Island clam diggers, or Italian countesses with Montana cowboys, or Cincinnati brewery agents with the Rajas of India. Or plain businessmen with aristocracy high above them, added Peskett. It don't jibe. People are divided into classes, whether we admit it or not. It's everybody's impulse to stick to their own class. They do it, too. I don't see why people go to work and buy hundreds of thousands of books like that. You don't see and hear of any such didos and capers in real life. We'll return to our show right after these messages from our sponsors. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And now, back to our show. Part 3 Well, John, said I, I haven't read a bestseller in a long time. Maybe I've had notions about them somewhat like yours. But tell me more about yourself. You getting along all right with the company? Bully, said Peskett, brightening at once. I've had my salary raised twice since I saw you, and I get a commission, too. I've bought a neat slice of real estate out on the East End, and I've run up a house on it. Next year, the firm's going to sell me some shares of stock. Oh, I'm in the line of general prosperity, no matter who's elected. 
Have you met your affinity yet? I asked. Oh, I didn't tell you about that, did I? said Pescud, with a broader grin. Oh, ho, I said. So you've taken time enough off from your plate glass to have a romance. No, no, said John. No romance, nothing like that. But I'll tell you about it. I was on the southbound, going to Cincinnati about 18 months ago, when I saw, across the aisle, the finest-looking girl I'd ever laid eyes on. Nothing spectacular, you know. Just the sort you want for keeps. Well, I never was up for the flirtation business, either handkerchief, automobile, postage stamp, or doorstep, and she wasn't the kind to start anything. She read a book and minded her business, which was to make the world prettier and better just by residing on it. I kept looking out the side doors of my eyes, and finally the proposition got out of the Pullman class into a case of cottage with a lawn and vines running over the porch. I never thought of speaking to her, but I let the plate glass business go to smash for a while. She changed cars at Cincinnati and took a sleeper to Louisville over the L&N. There she bought another ticket and went on through Shelbyville, Frankfurt, and Lexington. Along there I began to have a hard time keeping up with her. The trains came along when they pleased and didn't seem to be going anywhere in particular except to keep on the track and the right away as much as possible. Then they began to stop at junctions instead of towns, and at last they stopped altogether. I'll bet Pinkerton would outbid the plate glass people for my services any time if they knew how I managed to shadow that young lady. I contrived to keep out of her sight as much as I could, but I never lost track of her. The last station she got off was way down in Virginia, about six in the afternoon. There were about 50 houses and 400 blacks in sight. The rest was red mud, mules, and speckled hounds. A tall old man with a smooth face and white hair looking as proud as Julius Caesar and Roscoe Conkling on the same postcard, was there to meet her. His clothes were frazzled, but I didn't notice that till later. He took her little satchel, and they started over the plank walks and went up a road along the hill. I kept along a pace behind him, trying to look like I was hunting a garnet ring in the sand that my sister had lost at a picnic the previous Saturday. They went in a gate at the top of the hill, it nearly took my breath away when I looked up. Up there in the biggest grove I ever saw was a tremendous house with round white pillars on it about a thousand feet high, and the yard was so full of rose bushes and box bushes and lilacs that you couldn't have seen the house if it hadn't been as big as the capital at Washington. Here's where I hap the trail, says I to myself. I thought before that she seemed to be in moderate circumstances at least. This must be the governor's mansion or the agricultural building of a new world's fair. I'd better go back to the village and get posted by the postmaster, or drug the druggist for some information. In the village I found a pine hotel called the Bayview House. The only excuse for the name was a bay horse grazing in the front yard. I set my sample case down and tried to be ostensible. I told the landlord I was taking orders for plate glass. I don't want no plates, says he but I do need another glass molasses pitcher. By and by, I got him down to local gossip and answering questions. Why, says he, I thought everybody knowed who lived in the big white house on the hill. It's Colonel Allen, the biggest man and the finest quality in Virginia, or anywhere else. They're the oldest family in the state. That was his daughter that got off the train. She's been up to Illinois to see her aunt, who is sick. I registered at the hotel 
and on the third day I caught the young lady walking in the front yard, down next to the paling fence. I stopped and raised my hat. There wasn't any other way. Excuse me, says I. Can you tell me where Mr. Hinkle lives? Well, she looks at me as cool as if I was the man come to see about the weeding of the garden. But I thought I saw just a slight twinkle of fun in her eyes. No one of that name lives in Birchton, says she. That is, she goes on, as far as I know. Is the gentleman you're seeking white? Well, that tickled me. No kidding, says I. I'm not looking for smoke, even if I do come from Pittsburgh. You're quite a distance from home, says she. I've gone a thousand miles farther, says I. Not if you hadn't waked up when the train started in Shelbyville, says she, and then she turned almost as red as one of the roses of the bushes in the yard. I remembered I'd dropped off to sleep on a bench in the Shelbyville station, waiting to see which train she took, and only just managed to wake up in time. And then I told her why I had come, as respectful and earnest as I could, and I told her everything about myself and what I was making, and how that all I asked was just to get acquainted with her and try and get her to like me. She smiles a little, and then I told her why I had come, as respectful and earnest as I could, and I told her everything about myself and what I was making, and how that all I asked was just to get acquainted with her and try and get her to like me. She smiles a little and blushes some, but her eyes never get mixed up. They look straight at whatever she's talking to. I never had anyone talk like this to me before, Mr. Peskid, says she. What did you say your name is? John? John A., says I. And you came mighty near missing the train at Powhatan Junction, too, says she, with a laugh that sounded as good as a mileage book to me. How did you know? I asked. Men are very clumsy, said she. I knew you were on every train. I thought you were going to speak to me, and I'm glad you didn't. Then we had more talk, and at last a kind of proud, serious look came on her face, and she turned and pointed a finger at the big house. The Allens, says she, have lived in Elmcroft for a hundred years. We're a proud family. Look at that mansion. It has fifty rooms. See the pillars and porches and balconies? The ceilings in the reception rooms and the ballroom are twenty-eight feet high. My father is a lineal descendant of belted earls. I belted one of them once in the Duquesne Hotel in Pittsburgh, says I, and he didn't offer to resent it. He was there dividing his attentions between Monongahela whiskey and heiresses, and he got fresh. Of course, she goes on, my father wouldn't allow a drummer to set his foot in Elmroft. If he knew that I was talking to one over the fence, he would lock me in my room. Would you let me come there, says I. Would you talk to me if I was to call? For, I goes on, if you said I might come and see you, the earls might be belted or suspended, or pinned up with safety pins, as far as I'm concerned. I must not talk to you, she says, because we've not been introduced. It's not exactly proper. So I will say goodbye, Mr. Say the name, says I. You haven't forgotten it. Peskud, says she, a little mad. The rest of the name, I demands, cool as could be. John, says she. John what, I says. 
"'John A.' says she, with her head high. "'Are you through now?' "'I'm coming to see the belted earl tomorrow,' I says. "'He'll feed you to his foxhounds,' says she, laughing. "'If he does, I'll improve their running,' says I. "'I'm something of a hunter myself.' "'I must be going in now,' says she. "'I oughtn't to have spoken to you at all. "'I hope you'll have a pleasant trip back to Minneapolis, or... "'Or Pittsburgh, was it? "'Goodbye.' "'Good night,' says I, "'and it wasn't Minneapolis. "'What's your name? First, please.' "'She hesitated. "'Then she pulled a leaf off a bush and said, "'My name is Jessie,' says she. "'Good night, Miss Allen,' says I. "'The next morning at eleven sharp "'I rang the doorbell of that World's Fair main building.' About three-quarters of an hour, an old black man about 80 years old showed up and asked what I wanted. I gave him my business card and said I wanted to see the colonel, and he showed me in. Say, did you ever crack open a wormy English walnut? That's what that house was like. There wasn't enough furniture in it to fill an eight-dollar flat. Some old horsehair lounges and three-legged chairs and some framed ancestors on the walls were all that met the eye. But when Colonel Allen comes in, the place seemed to light up. You could almost hear a band playing and see a bunch of old timers in wigs and white stockings dancing a quadrille. It was the style of him, although he had on the same shabby clothes I saw him wear at the station. For about nine seconds he had me rattled, and I came mighty near getting cold feet and trying to sell him some plate glass, but I got my nerve back pretty quick. He asked me to sit down, and I told him everything. I told him how I'd followed his daughter from Cincinnati and what I did it for and all about my salary and prospects and explained to him my little code of living to be always decent and right in your hometown and when you're on the road never take more than four glasses of beer a day or play higher than a 25 cent limit. At first I thought he was going to throw me out the window but I kept on talking. Pretty soon I got a chance to tell him that story about the western congressman who had lost his pocketbook and the grass widow. You remember that story. Well, that got him to laughing, and I'll bet that was the first laugh those ancestors on the wall and horsehair sofas had heard in many a day. We talked two hours. I told him everything I knew, and then he began to ask questions, and I told him the rest. All I asked of him was to give me a chance. If I couldn't make a hit with the little lady, I'd clear out and not bother him any more. At last, he says... There was a Sir Courtenay Pescud in the name of Charles I, if I remember rightly. If there was, says I, he can't claim kin with our bunch. We've always lived in and around Pittsburgh. I've got an uncle in the real estate business and one in trouble somewhere out in Kansas. You can inquire about any of the rest of us from anybody in old Smoky Town and get satisfactory replies. Did you ever run across that story about the captain of the whaler who tried to make a sailor say his prayers? Says I. It occurs to me that I've never been so fortunate, says the colonel. So I told it to him. Laugh! I was wishing to myself that he was a customer. What a bill of glass I'd sell him. And then he says, The relating of anecdotes and humorous occurrences has always seemed to me, Mr. Pescud, to be a particularly agreeable way of promoting and perpetuating amenities between friends. With your permission, I will relate to you a fox hunting story with which I was personally connected, and which may furnish you 
some amusement. So he tells it. It takes 40 minutes by the watch. Did I laugh? Well, say, when I got my face straight, he calls in old Pete, the superannuated old man, and sends him down to the hotel to bring up my valise. It was Elmcroft for me while I was in the town. Two evenings later, I got a chance to speak a word with Miss Jessie alone on the porch while the colonel was thinking up another story. It's going to be a fine evening, says I. He's coming, says she. He's going to tell you this time the story about the old negro and the green watermelons. It always comes after the one about the Yankees and the game rooster. There was another time, she goes on, that you nearly got left behind, and that was at Pulaski City. Yes, says I, I remember. My foot slipped as I was jumping on the step, and I nearly tumbled off. I know, says she, and I, I was afraid you had, John A. I was afraid you had. And then she skips into the house through one of the big windows. Part 4 Coke down, droned the porter, making his way through the slowing car. Pescud gathered his hat and baggage with the leisurely promptness of an old traveler. I married her a year ago, said John. I told you I built a house in the East End. The belted, I mean the colonel, is there too. I find him waiting at the gate whenever I get back from a trip to hear any new story I might have picked up on the road. I glanced out of the window. Coketown was nothing more than a ragged hillside dotted with a score of black dismal huts propped up against dreary mounds of slag and clinkers. It rained in slanting torrents, too, and the rills foamed and splashed down through the black mud to the railroad tracks. "'You won't sell much plate glass here, John,' said I. "'Why do you get off at this end of the world?' "'The other day I took Jessie for a little trip to Philadelphia, "'and coming back she thought she saw some petunias in a pot "'in one of those windows over there, "'just like some she used to raise down in the old Virginia home. "'So I thought I'd drop off here for the night "'and see if I could dig up some of the cuttings or blossoms for her. "'Here we are. "'Good night, old man. "'I gave you the address. "'Come out and see us when you have time.' The train moved forward. One of the dotted brown ladies insisted on having windows raised now that the rain beat against them. The porter came along with his mysterious wand and began to light the car. I glanced downward and I saw the bestseller. I picked it up and set it carefully further along the floor of the car where the raindrops would not fall upon it. And then, suddenly, I smiled and seem to see that life has no geographical meets and bounds. Good luck to you, Trevelyan, I said, and may you get the petunias for your princess. Thanks for joining us for this great story from O. Henry. I wanted to ask all of you listeners a special favor, and that special favor is if you can get at least one other person to subscribe to our show. We would appreciate that very much, and that greatly helps us in the rankings. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the story. We'll have a brand new story for you next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And don't forget to search and find 1001 Greatest Love Stories, which is also becoming very popular. 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Give it a try. You'll enjoy it. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. See you then.
bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.